bet. So we, uh, we always ask you some accountability questions in the services. By the way, just want you to know, not only do we have a team down working at uh, the Gospel Rescue Mission this morning, but we also have some people on the, full, on the uh, Red Sleigh toy ride from Full Throttle. So we have some people out there doing different things, and uh, we're going to do one on Saturday. We don't do that on Sunday just because it's church day, you know, and there's other days we can do that. But some of our people came to the early service so they could go join them and be the hands and feet of Jesus for us, representing out there in this community. We have a, a lot going on. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. And uh, as we start this week, being the first Sunday of Advent, we'll talk about that in a minute. want to know about your faith and how you're walking outside of church. And I want to know if you spent some time with God in His Word at least five days, five minutes last week in the Word of God. Did you do that? Yes. Did you share God's story with someone this week? Yes. Man, we have been given a wide open door right now because of being Advent, Christmas season coming in. Kim and I watched the Great, uh, light. I, I always get that thing messed up. Anyway, everybody does Christmas lights, and they have a competition to see who does the best lighting. I like that stuff. I love the lights. I love the fact that it represents Jesus in the world. That's why we put lights up, because he came as the light of the world in the darkness. And so I like to put up a lot of Christmas lights and all that, and I like watching that stuff. And the cool thing is, is that oftentimes those that are in the competitions always have Jesus. And uh, talking about him, and they give him up. And this is secular TV, which, you know, is not real godly-minded. Uh, but they they share Jesus on that, the fact that he is the, the, the reason for the season and stuff, and there's nativities, different stuff that they show. The reason I bring that up is because right now, this amazing opportunity has been provided for us through this season that people, even in the secular world, recognize that Christmas is about Jesus, all right? So now that as we share our faith with people and we're called by God to give God stories, which is one of our questions we ask, I want to encourage you, church, that not only as you share God's stories with people, but in this season specifically, that you would be pointed and um, intentional in your direction of calling people to the Savior Jesus himself. And this is an opportunity God's provided for us in this incredible time that we can not only point people to Jesus, but lead them to him, which is the call of every one of us to make disciples. So in this past week, have you been sharing God's stories in the context of who Jesus is. Have you done that? You have this great opportunity now. Let's take advantage of it throughout this month that we would fulfill God's call for us as a church to each one of us lead someone into this incredible faith, teaching them what it means to be a Christ follower. We have this point. So we have to be intentional about sharing our faith with people, not just like living it. That's great. We need to live it. It's not just saying, hey, would you come to church with me? That's great. You should invite people to come to church with you, but also that you might have an opportunity to share with them and ask them about their personal relationship with Jesus. And if they don't have one or don't understand it, that you would be able to invite them into that incredible relationship with him. Take advantage of it, man. Never have a door open like you do right now. You know what the Holy Spirit's saying to you? Yes. Amen. Are you giving as God has asked you to give and your time, talents, and resources, all of the above? Yes. All right. Church, we are going to step into this amazing day called First Sunday of Advent. We celebrated Thanksgiving like y'all did this weekend, uh, coming in on Thursday, kind of stepping into Friday, had the leftovers again yesterday, done with that. Time to start something new. So it's Christmas. Today is the first Sunday of Advent, which is the day that we celebrate hope. And so I want you to know that for all of you that don't follow a calendar and stuff and you start playing Christmas music and decorating in September, that I want you to know it's finally time that you can actually do that. All right? You, 
you have permission to put up lights, play Christmas music, wear ugly sweaters, whatever it is you want to do. It's now time, and you can do this, and you have until December 26th, and then it's over. Pack it up, put it away. It's over. All right, but let's take advantage of it while we have it, and let's celebrate this amazing season that God has given to us. I'm very grateful for the church fathers that, um, that in the calendar of the church, understanding us as human beings and stuff, but the church fathers, and I say fathers because it was men that got together in those days to talk about these things and make these decisions, but they put together this leading into this incredible moment of Christmas, the birth that we celebrate, the birth of Jesus Christ. And so as we did, the, the Sundays are recognized as uh, hope and peace and joy and love. Those are the four Sundays that lead into this incredible season that we have. And so there's this theme and this idea behind them. And there's a purpose scripturally and the reason why we have it this way, that the world has been given a, a great promise from God, and it is the hope of the world. And it's found in Jesus Christ that he came as the light in the darkness, this incredible promise that God said he would do from the very beginning of time. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, church, man, we've been talking about this. We're going to look at it again for just a moment. When Adam and Eve had everything in front of them, they had everything about life given to them, relationship with God, dominion over all the world, having dominion over the animals, the plants, the water, the birds of the sky, and uh, they sacrificed it for the one thing God said not to have. After they sinned and they disobeyed God, they tried to fix themselves. As you know, they put big leaves together and tried to cover themselves and they hid when God showed up on the scene and God said you know why are you doing this what's going on he knew but he was asking them to confess what's going on inside of them and they saw that they were naked and they were ashamed and they tried to hide their shame this is what we do we try and hide the brokenness that's within us and they did it by putting together a garment that they would just be able to hide behind so that no one could see them for what they were because we were exposed within and so God himself said that when sin enters the world, if you disobey, that is sin, that death enters the world. And therefore, God sacrificed an animal, took its skin, put it on them, telling them and telling us and explaining to us that life is in the blood. Blood must be shed for the sin of the world. And therefore, God shed the blood of an innocent animal to put the clothing on humanity to give a temporary covering and then he gave a promise that he was going to send forth the Messiah, the Savior, someone that would come that would fix the problem of the world, which is sin. Now, God promised that in the garden thousands of years ago. That generation of people and every generation to follow had a hope for that Messiah, that one that would be the answer, the remedy for the sin problem, the restoration of the relationship with God. God established a sacrificial system in the garden, and that sacrificial system was being uh, practiced. It's not the Mosaic law I'm talking about in Genesis prior to a covenant with Moses and all that. Prior to the teaching of what it meant, there was a sacrificial system that God himself established. Now then, as that traveled forward and people kept looking for the answer, God made the covenant with Abraham that we know about, the Abrahamic covenant, that he would call the Hebrew people his own people. He would be their God. They would be his people. He promised Abraham that through him all nations would be blessed. That was the promise of our Messiah. Everyone continued to have this hope in God's promise. God promises to Abraham he has one son. Hundreds of years later, a nation comes forth out of Egypt. God establishes that covenant 
through Moses in a form of worship, making again promises of the coming Savior. Generation after generation after generation for hundreds and hundreds of years are looking for this promise of God. Oftentimes, church, we look back on the, the people of Judah and Israel, and we look at those people, those that descended from the Abrahamic covenant, and we think of how crazy they are and how ridiculous they were, how they followed God, didn't follow God. But I want to say this in their favor, that for thousands of years, they believed that God would deliver on his word. Thousands of years. They had a hope. So when I look at that, I, I want to tell you right now that I feel a deep conviction in Dave because I know God is good to his word. I know his promises. And when I ask him for stuff, if it's not happening within a very short amount of time, I kind of dismiss it as not his will or it's not going to happen. And I kind of like just don't even look for it anymore. When I look at this and I see these people in their hope of God for not just a couple weeks, months, or years. Ladies and gentlemen, our nation's only 200 and what? 50, 60, whatever it is years old. And I'm talking about they believed this promise from God for thousands of years. And here I am like, God, I, I want you to do this for me. And by next week, if it's not happening, I'm kind of like checking the box as, well, not going to happen. And I know this as I'm reading God's word. But they had a hope. They had a hope that God was going to deliver on his word. And so the people of Abrahamic descendant, the, the Hebrew people themselves, continuously from one generation to the next, were looking for and expecting the Messiah. We step into the New Testament, which is where all of this comes to a point and begins the redemption that God had planned since the beginning of time. And in that, that moment of time where God says it's time, we see something happening that God was up to, which is crazy awesome. See, I love the Christmas story, but I, I, I like all of it. Like, I love all of it, but I actually love the Christmas story in John more than I do Matthew and Luke. And a lot of times we all know that the birth of Jesus' story is only in Matthew and Luke and the Gospels. It's the only one that's there. But in John, he says something critically important for you and I to understand our promise from God. When John introduces Jesus, he introduces him as the Word. And he tells us, and the Word became flesh and lived among us. He was in the beginning with God, and he was God. So here's what John gives us, this incredible revelation. He says that Jesus is God. He says Jesus is God and all things that were made were made by him and anything and everything that is made was made through him. Man, we just like step back from that for just a second because there's a lot of false teachings out there that talk about Jesus coming into existence at Bethlehem and that is not biblical. The truth is, is that Jesus existed since the beginning for he is God. And God became flesh. This is what John writes to us, and it's why it's so important for us in the Christmas story. God became flesh and lived among us. 
He became human. He became what God became one of us. That's amazingly awesome. All right. So the, the Jewish people held on to that promise God was going to do this. They believed that God was going to send the Messiah, the Savior, the Redeemer. They knew it. They knew the promises. They taught those promises that were given through the prophet of old, through the law. Everything that God had promised, they believed it. We have evidence of this even happening in the day of Jesus. When John the Baptist came forth, he was the one that was promised that would be the forerunner of the Messiah, given through an amazing promise of God to uh, to, um, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Sorry, I had to recalibrate my brain there. And uh, and so John's on the scene preaching. And John is calling people to repentance, and he's telling them that the Messiah is coming. So here's a a really incredible thing that happens in chapter 1 of John that I want us to look at, which shows how intently the Jewish people believed and were hoping for the Messiah. This was John's testimony. I read you John chapter 1, verse 19. This was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders sent priests and temple assistants from Jerusalem to to ask John, who are you? He came right out and said, I am not the Messiah. So I'm just going to pause here. We're going to keep reading, but it's a really cool conversation that happens here. John knew exactly what they were asking, and he also knew who they were looking for. This was common knowledge. Everybody in their culture was expecting Jesus. They were looking for him. And it's obvious. I mean, church, seriously, think about this. Of thousands of years later, they were still this in tune with their hope. Who are you? And he came right out and said, I am not the Messiah. Well, then who are you? They asked. Are you Elijah? No, he replied. Are you the prophet we're expecting? No. Then who are you? We need an answer for those who sent us. What do you have to say about yourself? John replied in the words of the prophet Isaiah, I am a voice shouting in the wilderness. Clear the way for the Lord's coming. Isn't that awesome? That's like such cool stuff right there, man. When I read that, I'm like, that is so cool. Here they are looking for him. They're asking, like, are you the one? Here's the thing, church. I want you to put this in your mind and hold this in our heart. Because you see... They were all looking, expecting, hoping, wanting. They were looking and they saw John preaching a repentance. They saw people coming to John in droves to be baptized, repenting of their sin, calling out to God. There had been no one in their culture for many, 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 many centuries like John. And therefore, when John showed up on the scene, like a wild man, so to speak, wearing the clothes that were not normal for their culture, speaking and calling people out of their sin, telling them they need to repent. They're like, this guy is something different, and there's something about him we need to understand. Are you the one? So we know that they were actually looking for someone that would call the people into repentance and relationship with God, right? It's obvious, because that's what John was doing. And so the priests and the leaders of the Jews said, Are you him? So think about it. They're looking for the one. He's doing these things, calling people to repentance, baptizing them, telling them to change their life, and they think he's the one. All right. 
Now let's stay with us for just a second. Jesus shows up on the scene. John, the one who they thought was the one, says he's the one. There he is. It's the one I've been talking about. Now let's see what happens here now. Since we already know the Jewish leaders, the prophets, the temple guard, the common folks know that the Savior's coming, they're hoping for him, they're believing. When they see John, they're thinking this could be. Now John says, this is he. And Jesus steps on the scene and miracles are happening. The word is spreading. People are running out into the streets to meet him. It's like everything about what was promised is happening before their very eyes. And in John chapter 10, we want to pick up some reading about the thing that's happening now that Jesus is full front on the scene. The festival of the dedication of the temple took place in Jerusalem during the winter. Jesus was walking on Solomon's porch in the temple courtyard. The Jews surrounded him, and they asked him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I've told you, but you don't believe me. The things that I do in my Father's name testify on my behalf. However, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep respond to my voice, and I know who they are, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. They will never be lost, and no one will tear them away from me. My Father who gave them to me is greater than everyone else, and no one can tear them away from my Father. The Father and I are one. Yeah. Did he not answer? Jesus, he's answered. The Father and I are one. The Jews had again brought some rocks to stone Jesus to death. Jesus replied to them, I've shown you many good things that come from the Father. Which of these things do you want to stone me to death? The Jews answered Jesus, We're going to stone you to death, not for any good things that you've done, but for dishonoring God. You claim to be God, although you're only a man. Now, when I read this, like, church, you hear what they said. They came and they said, Are you? And they answered themselves right here. You say you're God. They knew that he claimed to be the one. They knew. These are the same people that sent the, the questioners to John, are you? They wanted to know because they were looking for him. They wanted him. But you see, the problem was when they actually saw him, they didn't like him. Because he did not fit what their hope dictated. They had a hope for the Messiah, but in their hope, they projected on their Messiah something that was not the Messiah. And therefore, because he did not represent what they wanted him to represent, they brought rocks with them. See, rejection was the plan all along. They did not want the Jesus that was the Jesus. They wanted their own Jesus. Come on, church. Let that sink in right there. See, Jesus did not meet 
their expectations, their own perception of hope. They were looking for him to be something that he did not turn out to be, and therefore they rejected him. It's what's going on today. It's the same thing. See, people want a Savior. People want a God. But they want their God, and they want their Savior. And they want Him to do what they want Him to do, and okay what they want okayed. And they want to be what they're supposed to be according to their standards. Therefore, everyone wants a God, but they want their own God, not God. And therefore, when he doesn't measure up to our standards, we simply bring our rocks. And we ask him for stuff, knowing the answer, with our own intention already known, before we ever approach him. See, we, we even do it in the church. Now, I'm, I'm saying we're, we're looking at the world for a minute, but I want us to get this. This is the church and here we are as the church of Jesus Christ. And many of us come to God and expect Him to meet our expectations. And if He doesn't, then we have a conversation with Him about it. If He isn't like this, if He doesn't do this, if He doesn't answer this, then is He really God? Is He going to be God if He heals me or not? Is he going to be God whether I keep my job or lose it? Is he going to be God if I have cancer tomorrow or not? See, church, the problem is, is we have a God that we want to meet our expectations, and when he doesn't, we're very quick to cast him aside. See, we, we have a standard we expect Jesus to meet, and if he doesn't meet it, we reject him. And the reason why we have done this in mass across our culture and even as a nation we've rejected him is because Jesus calls us to a life that we don't want to live. We want a savior. We want a savior who's going to pick us up and fix us. We want a God that's going to lift up our nation and make us wealthy and healthy and strong. Uh, a God that will make us the world power once again. That's the God we want. And if we're not there, then we need to find another way. See, in the church, we have expectations of Jesus. And, um, like, I'm guilty of this. I ask God for stuff, and if I don't see Him moving, I'll move for Him. Because I know it has to be His will, because I want it. And therefore, if I want it and I have godly desires, then I'm going to work for him and I'm going to make it happen and I'm going to try and help him make it his will. You know, a lot of us have made a mess of our lives. And then we come to Jesus and we just want him to like magically fix it all. Like use your godness and make all this go away. Like, I mean, I've been, like, I'm just going to speak for all of us. We've been messing things up for years. And everything's falling apart around us. And all of a sudden we come to God and it's like, I see that you're God now. Oh, I give you everything. I give you that and that and that and that. Fix it. 
and I'm coming to him, and then when it doesn't get fixed immediately, when we've screwed everything up so bad, then we're wondering what's wrong with God, and why is my life like this? And I thought following you meant that you're going to be God and stuff. He is God. He wasn't leading you into that screwed upness of your life. You did that. And you did that when you weren't letting him be God. Therefore, church, he is God. And he wants to help you. But we've got the mentality in the church even where God is, I mean, like the Aladdin story, which has got the best screwed up theology, so don't go there. But I'm just saying, like, we're looking for that God in the bottle. We just rub that, like, come on, hey, fix it. All right, now that things are a lot better, can you get back in there and put a cork on it and set it on the shelf? Hey, God, I'll call on you when I need you again. You know, it's, look, God's not, like, there to meet our need, but he meets our needs. See, the, the problem is, is, okay, God saved us to serve him. He didn't save us so he could serve us. And many of us are expecting God to serve us because we finally acknowledge who he is. It's like, oh, you are God. Oh, good deal. Now I have you in my heart. Now you're going to fix all my problems. So when we look at this, I want to say, church, that as we reflect on this story and we see the Jews rejecting him because he came as a servant instead of a king, They were looking for a deliverer and he didn't deliver the way they wanted. They were looking for freedom but not the freedom that he delivered. They were looking for him to reign but not over them with them. See, they wanted him to take them to the top. They were looking for a Messiah. Look, they were reading the same verses we do and and they were interpreting what God said and manipulating what he said to fit their plan. Many of us are reading the Bible the same way they did. We're looking for the verses that will align with, agree with, or fix my life. We want affirmation. We want God to just say yes to us. And God's not here to say yes to us. He said yes to us when he gave his life for us. He's asking us to say yes to him, which is the surrender that he's called us to, church. It's like we're trying to manipulate his plan into our life. We're trying to fix it for him. I've done it. When you find yourself trying to force God's will into something you want, wake up. Come on, you know this. Look, we've asked God for stuff and we're praying. And I I want you to know I do this and I've done this and you've done it. I'm just going to confess for you. (laughs) We pray and we ask God for stuff and there's only one answer he can give us. It's our answer. There's no other answer he can give us because we're asking him, looking to him, leaving him, for that and if that doesn't happen some of us get a little frustrated with God like come on 
this has to be your will. Why would I be sick? I should have health. Why shouldn't I have this? Other people do. I'm not asking for much. I just want this. And so we're asking God with a particular of looking to him to be my answer. It's exactly what the Jews were doing when they came to Jesus. They only wanted one answer. They wanted the answer they wanted because they already had their plan. They brought their rocks with them. Let me, let me reread this to you again. Listen to what it said. The Jews had again brought some rocks to stone Jesus to death. Again. They just carried him with them, evidently, looking for the moment that they could take him out. So when they asked the question, they already knew the answer. They confessed they knew the answer. They actually confessed that he had already shown that he and proclaimed that he was who he was. But they were looking for something because their objective was their objective, not God's. There was only one plan, theirs. So here we are. When we come to God, are we guilty? No, we're not packing rocks. But seriously, church, we oftentimes come to him asking him questions that we already know the answer to, but we're trying to force him to give us our answer because we won't accept anything other than what we want. He's our hope. He's our hope. Jesus is our hope. Not the answer. Not what he does. He is. He is our hope. See, if we could work it out, figure it out, make it happen, we wouldn't need a Savior in the first place. We, we can't. And yet, we continue to try and make everything work and, and bring God into the equation like some lucky rabbit's foot or something. And we're, we're treating him like, God, you're going to fix this. I know you are, and I believe you. And so that because we say we believe, it ought to be. See, I want you to know that Jesus did not meet the expectations of his followers in many, many ways. He didn't. Even the disciples themselves. Look, I mean, when we're looking at the Jews, which were the outsiders, the temple leaders, right? And I, I see this, and I'm like, well, they already had their agenda. But please hear this. The disciples themselves, who he had mentored and worked with and walked with through life together, those guys, even Peter, James, and John, his inner circle of friends, the ones that he was the closest to in the 12. By the way, Jesus didn't have cliques. He just had friends. Some of us get all freaked out because people have friends, and we're not one of them. Just relax. You have friends, and if you don't, make some. You, you make your own little group of friends. All right? Don't think you have to be in someone else's. So Jesus has Peter, James, and John closer than anyone else, right? It's biblical. I can see it. It's right there in the scriptures, guys. And then there was the 12. And then obviously he sent out 72 uh, of them at another time. And then there was the crowds. All right, let's just go to this for a minute. Here's the disciples, the very ones that were walking and ministering with him, the very ones that he gave them power over demons and sicknesses, sent them out, and they took authority, and they were healing people, and they came back like, Whoa, this is amazing. We were like casting out demons, and they would run. 
We were healing people, and Jesus was like, yeah, guys, hey, don't celebrate about that. Rather celebrate that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. See, again, he's trying to get our focus on what it's really all about. It's not about all that. It's about that. Right? Okay. So here's the guys that he's trying to teach this every day to. And do you know how many times it comes up in conversation amongst themselves who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Not the kingdom of heaven, sorry, in Jesus' kingdom. They were still looking right here right now for what they were expecting. And so even like uh, James and John's mom, she shows up and kind of walks up to Jesus and says, hey, I, got her, I, got, I want to ask you something. And he's like, okay, what do you want? Um, when you enter into your kingdom, can you put my boys right up there with you? Seriously, like that's she did. And he was like, that's not for me to do. So then those guys get involved in these conversations more than once, more than twice. Multiple times the disciples themselves are looking for that place where they'll be elevated. Okay, let's fast forward for a minute. We're here in the upper room just before Jesus would give his life for us. He's already been telling them, I'm going to be handed over into the hands of sinners. I'm going to die on the third day. I'll rise again. They're like, I can't hear that. What's that all about? We don't want to do that. We're not following that, you know. So here's Jesus. We enter into John 13 here. And it's the very night he would be handed over to be murdered for our sins. And as he is there in that room with them, he does this incredible thing. In John 13, it tells us that he stood up his robe, got the the water and a towel, got down on his knees, and he began to wash the disciples' feet, and he's, he just took the lowliest servant's place, like, that is the lowest place you can serve, okay? I was a garbage man for two years, like I picked up trash, that's what I did for a job, you know, and I want you to know that uh, there's be, when Kim and I, just before we got married and why we were married, and I want you to know people looked down on me. Some of them wouldn't even say hi to me when I'd say hello to them because they viewed me as, you're just a garbage man, right? So I want you to know, like, this, this is lower than that. Jesus is down on his knees washing the feet. Remember who John said he was? This is God. <laughs> it's God. The creator of all things. Gets down on his knees and starts to wash their feet. And, and John writes this to us. He lets us know. He says, after washing their feet, he put on his robe again. And he sat down and he asked, do you understand what I was doing? I mean, can you just like just get the, the context of that room for just a minute and the tension, if you will, that was there of humility and like, like just, wow, what is going on? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're all right because that's what I am. Oh, man, do you hear what Jesus just said? You guys acknowledge who I am. You see me for who I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. 
do as I have done to you. What a profound teaching just took place. An example lived before them. It's like, here's what it's all about, guys. I'm trying to help you see this. That, man, it is all about humbling yourself and serving. It's not about you. It's not about where you are or what you get or what you become. It's serving. See, man, when the, when the, the, the temple people and all the priests and the Sadducees and all those guys that were teachers and everybody saw them up here, saw what Jesus modeled, they were like, we don't want that, man. He does not meet our expectations. We expected the Savior to lift us up with him to overthrow that Roman Empire that is now lording over us, who's taxing us and taking... We expected our Savior to lift us and throw them down and so that we could be up and they could be down. Right? Here we are, church. Jesus is like, hey, I'm just trying to teach you. You, my closest followers, who have been living with me, knowing me, watching what I'm doing, I want you to see, this is what I'm talking about. Do you know what happened when they left the room? There was a conversation between them about who would be the greatest in the coming kingdom. Right after that, Right after this. See, God had given a revelation in their life. He had revealed the truth of the Messiah, the truth of the Savior, the truth of the message, the truth of the kingdom. And they were so fixated on their own interpretation of what that would look like when they saw it modeled. Clueless. God's revelation right before their very eyes, tangibly touching them. Church, how many times has God manifested himself to us, calling us into this incredible relationship of surrender? And we look to him and we ignore what we've seen, what he said, what he's shown. We ignore the answers that he's given because we're still pushing for what we want. See, our hope Jesus came serving not to be served. And he called us to live that kind of life. I find it fascinating that in the church, and I've written, so just so you know, I have tried to send letters to different places in church leadership about this, that we would recommend, we recognize, I'm sorry, in the Protestant church, the sacrament of baptism and the Lord's Supper, but not foot washing. And I mean, right there in the scriptures, Jesus said, I've done this for you, now go and do it for each other, right? I'm not going to tell you, we're not washing feet, so don't get all nervous and wonder if you have holes in your socks, just relax, okay? (laughs) But I'm just saying, like, why is it that we don't? You know, I've done this for my wife. God asked me to do this for her, and I'm just telling you this because it was, it's every time that I've done this with my wife, it's been this incredible God presence that shows up. We've led uh, minis- uh, marriage retreats, Kim and I have, and we've invited husbands to, to model this and do this for their wife because he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, right? You understand? 
So when we actually physically do it, the presence of God shows up like amazing. Never once have we ever had that kind of a foot washing, any kind of a foot washing where the Spirit of God doesn't show up. So I'm just telling you, if you're a married couple, husband, you should seriously go home today and wash your wife's feet. You and her alone, and just wash her feet. Do it in humility and humbleness before God. And I'm telling you, God will show up. We don't like to do things like this because seriously, our flesh wants to be lifted up, not humbled. It's not like we want to be glorified, but we want to be recognized. And so in our desire to be recognized, to be seen, to be someone, see, it, it just calls us into this self-serving selfishness, which is what sin's all about. And what Jesus is calling us into is, is this absence of self and humility that he modeled for us, not only in the washing of the feet, but man, he did that knowing that he was about to be handed over to the world to be stripped of every dignity that a human being could have. To not only suffer physically through the beatings, but to be exposed to the world hanging on a cross. To be rejected by the very ones he created. Knowing that multitudes, even past that point, he already knew he was going to come back. But even knowing that when he came back, multitudes would still reject him. And he did it anyway. When Justin was talking last Sunday, he's made this comment. This is not a correction, Justin, so I want everyone to hear me fully through what I'm about to say. When he made the statement that if you were the only one, Jesus would have gave his life anyway, I want you to know if no one would have accepted he'd have given his life anyway. Because you see, God loves us, and his desire was to redeem all of us. And so even if no one would respond, God would have done his part because God loves us and God is God and he is good to his word and he promised he would fix it. <laughs> Our hope is found in serving. That's where it's found. We're, we're all looking for hope in a... Please hear me right when I say this. this is just... We're looking for hope in like new positions and new housing and, and new career opportunities and new this and new that and different this. And we're looking for our hope in life. And he is our hope. And, and, and we in the church need to refocus our eyes and understand he is our hope. It is not found out there. It is not for God to give us anything. He's already given us everything. Therefore, when we look to Him and we know that He is the answer, He is our hope. Now, I, I'm at this point where I'm going to ask questions. These are my action steps, but I'm not, like, I'm telling you just because I don't want you to, like, check out, because I know that we can do that. And I'm asking you not to, because I'm going to pause for a minute, because there's this incredible thing that God did for Dave that I want to share with you. Because oftentimes in my prayer life, 
I have found myself praying and asking God for things that really has only one answer, and it's my answer. I'm looking, and I'm, I know that God wants us to ask Him. Okay, so don't misunderstand me, but I'm telling you that I find myself seeking God and praying, and I'll even fast because I am looking for that answer. Okay, so I'm, I'm growing in my faith. I want you to know I am. And I'm, I'm walking with God, and I love Him. And He's changing me, and He's still changing me. And as I'm walking with God, a while back, I don't want to put a time frame on it. It was a long while back, not years. I'm saying a while back. I'm spending time with God in prayer, and I listen. And I, I, I often say things to you like God said to me. I, I use that terminology. And when I say that, I do want to clarify some things for everyone, not only here, but for Mission Online, everybody. When I say I, God says to me, it's not like I hear an audible voice. God doesn't like just have this conversation with Dave where I hear him and I'm like just listening like Moses did. What I want to say to you is what I know is that the Spirit of God speaks to our heart just like Jesus said he would. And, and the Holy Spirit impresses in me, right inside of me, where there's no denying God is speaking. Okay? I have only heard an audible voice from God one time, and it was when I was not even walking with Him. And He told me no, and I didn't do what He said. Okay, I'm just letting you know that. But I, and I have heard an audible voice in the room say no, and I ignored it. That's why I'm in awe of God. I mean, how could he ever love me and say yes to me? <laughs> anyway, so I know when he's talking because the Holy Spirit is real and he's in us. And so as I'm talking to him and I'm praying and I'm seeking him, God asked me this profoundly crazy question. And so I want to share it with you as a question that I want to ask you the same way that he asked me. This is what he said. Dave, what do you expect from me? And it wasn't like in response to something. It was the question as we were in relationship in that moment of me listening. Let me put it to you this way. God is asking, what do you expect from him? And when I heard that question in my heart and I was thinking about it, contemplating the, the first thought I had was, it's crazy that I have expectations of God. <laughs> I mean, like, He's God. And here I am, the creation, and I expect Him to do something. And so when I was thinking about my expectations for Him, I was like, you know, I, I gave the first few Christian responses we ought to all give. Well, I expect you to be good to your word. I expect you to do what you promised. You know, those are godly answers. So it's like, those are no-brainers. So I can throw them out there like trying to check the box. You're God. You know, you, you said you'd do some stuff. I expect you to do it. But as I continued to process that in thinking, I began to realize that I absolutely had expectations of God that I was projecting on him. And I was like, wow, that is so weird that I expected you to do this or be this for me. And it was completely self-driven. And I didn't even realize it. But they were real expectations I had of him. And as I expected from him, what I was expecting was actually causing me struggles inside 
because I was struggling with certain aspects of belief because he wasn't delivering the way I thought he should. And I was like, wow, man, that is crazy that my own expectations of you is limiting who you are in my life. That's like so crazy. That's an oxymoron. You're God, and I think you ought to act like God, and this is the way you ought to act. I mean, I'm just telling you that I believe we all have done this. I'm not, I don't think I'm alone, but if I am, then you're just here to hear my confession. So here is this. He's like, what do you expect from me? So I literally began to write things down. I had my notepad, and uh, this wasn't just a momentary conversation. I was processing this for some time. And then I, I began to be real about it. Like, God, what do I expect from you? I do expect to be in heaven. I do expect the, the power of the word of God to work. I expect these things. I expect you to move in my family, to move in the church, to move into I'm Like, I was expecting things from God, and so I just began to list them. And when I started to list my expectations in that, God kind of interrupted it in there, and he said, uh, Dave, what can I expect from you? And so I, I'm asking you, church, what can God expect? For, every one of us have expectations for him. What can God expect from you? Now, when I was contemplating that, there's a lot of really easy Christian responses to give. But then as I was processing this, God's challenging me. I'm being completely transparent with him and with myself as I began to think like, God, what can you expect from me? And so I began to, to kind of process that, and I thought of the things he can. I mean, I'm going to be a faithful man of God. I'm going to be faithful to my wife, faithful to my family, faithful to you, God. I'm going to preach the gospel. I will not compromise on that truth. God, I'm going to call people to repentance. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And I began to look and say, God, you can expect this from me. And as I was going down through my list and trying to build my case, so to speak, and I don't mean that negatively. I'm just saying, like, I'm, I'm trying to validate myself before him. Like, you can expect this from I will meet your standard, God. I will. I finally got to the point where it was like, <laughs> there's only one thing you expect from me. That is my surrendered trust in who you are and my full obedience. That's it. He wasn't looking for a to-do list that I would perform for him. All God wanted from me was my yes. You are my God, and I'm all yours. That's it. Isn't that crazy? Because my, my immediate response on both things was to create a list. Here's Jesus to his disciples. Wash feet, man. I got a sword. Wait a minute. Wash feet. That was Peter's response, you know. Lord, I got a sword. <laughs> I'll fight for you. Wash feet. Like, Lord, forgive us for having these expectations of you. And forgive me for trying to perform for you to meet what I perceive to be your expectations. And really all you want is my surrender. That's it. So I'm, I cheated and helped you with the answer. 
But I really want you to, to think about for yourself, would you take those two questions home with you in your journal? And, you know, what do you expect from God and what can God expect from you? There's another question I want to ask you, and it's kind of like, you know, um, I'm not making excuses for myself. I'm pretty transparent, and I'd rather be bold forward than try and candy coat stuff. So here's the next question. You ready? How have your prayers and plans been manipulating God into giving you what you want? You know, we can be so sanctimonious and holy in the way we ask God to do what we want Him to do. And, and we can even convince ourselves that we're asking Him with the right motives. But we already know the answer, and we're still pushing for our answer. You see, these guys came and said, tell us plainly, are you him? He's like, I've already told you, and you know. You see the evidence. It's all there. Then they like, we know you say you're him. Okay? I laugh at that whole conversation because they brought their rocks looking for an answer. He gave them the answer, and then they didn't do anything about it. Here I am. Okay, God. Here's the deal. I'm laying it out for you. Again, we've had this conversation. I continue to pray, and I'm asking you, and I'm not telling you don't be persistent in your prayers. Hear what I'm saying. Persistence in praying for our answer is different than persisting in prayer. When I won't accept God's answer that he's already given me, I have the problem, not God. And church, we got to stop trying to manipulate God into giving us what we want. It doesn't have to be our answer. It has to be His. And His answer is the right one. <laughs> so here's the last one. Whose feet has God asked you to wash? Now, I don't, I'm not telling you you're supposed to go wash someone's feet, okay? If God definitely says for you to do that, you should do it. But I'm telling you, I, this is Dave. I highly doubt he's telling you to wash someone's feet. What I do believe he's doing is saying, I want you to serve that person in that capacity. Humble yourself with them. Show them your servant heart that I myself put in you so that the world can see who I am. When we serve in that humbleness and humility, that's when God says, I will lift you up. And when God himself lifts us up because we've served in, humili served in humility, it is the most amazing, honoring thing there is. When we are serving because we want to be lifted up, there is no benefit. See, it's all about the heart relationship with God and what he's called us into. It's not about me not about you it's always about him and when it's not about him it's not right and so check your prayers check your life he's in lead he told these religious leaders he said you don't believe you're not my sheep because my sheep know me and I know them and they know my voice and they what follow me when you find yourself in front, you're in the wrong place. Yeah, follow him. Yes, Lord. I have found myself leading him.
multiple times through the years. Leading him, calling him, inviting him on my journey to fix things for him. God is saying, follow me. Let me do the work. You just come. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. If you're stressed out, worried, frustrated, worn out, you're not doing God's work. You're doing your own. Let him lead, man. Let's stand together. Altar's open. You need to come and repent. You need to give it to him. Whatever it is that you need, if you don't know Jesus, if you're down there at the mission, come to the front of that chapel down there and you just do business with God. He loves you. Please, church, let's be real with what's going on. He loves you. He's calling you into this amazing relationship with him. Let's not project on him what we perceive him to be, but allow him to be who he is. He is God. Father, we love you. We're so grateful for you. We are humbled that you would ever allow us to be in your presence, for you are God. So again, Lord, I ask forgiveness for my projections upon you, my expectations of you. my expectations of you in this church and what you do here in the ministry in Tucson. God, forgive me for projecting on you what I expect from you. Lord, we commit ourselves, I commit myself to you, Lord, to serve you, and I love you, and I thank you for this amazing time that we've been able to share together with you, God. God, we are so humbled and honored that you would ever allow us to be with you. As we leave this place, carrying with us the hope of the world let us be that messenger to the world around us as we serve our fellow men in your love we pray this in jesus name amen god bless you church have an amazing day with him this altar is always open don't leave without the answer amen brother